The Edge of the World Art Studio is proud to present Helen of the Iron Horse, written by Paris Danielle Lee. Artwork by Helen Rachel Lee. Music by Fish Zombie the Onions. And special thanks to Spooky the Cat for her contributions, fuzzy as they might be. Chapter 87 The End of the Line 1886 April The Railroad Camp Denver, Colorado It felt like no time at all, and the train's brakes engaged as it slowed to a stop, and neither of us could breathe. But somehow Paris found the strength to stand up and offer me her hand. She pulled me up from the couch and walked to the door, kissed me, holding me, I wished it would never end. But it did, and she stepped back. You have the key, she reminded me. I pulled from my cuff Penelope's key, the key that opens any door. We stepped out into the loud and busy railroad camp. Miss Taggett, you've made it. Are you well? asked Castor as I stepped off the train. I am, I said. You have to come with me. The Baron wishes to meet you. Of course. Anna, you need to go talk to Odysseus, but be sure to take the job. I can't do it without you. I will, Paris said as I left her there. I held my breath. I forced the tears in me to stay put. I walked away from her, knowing I may never see her again. I followed Castor to the wooden tower. Paris watched me until she heard Odysseus behind her. She's not really Helen of Troy, you know, he said. I don't know who that is, Paris replied. She didn't tell you the story? She didn't talk about herself? A little, but I don't know anything about Helen of Troy, except that she's the face that launched a thousand ships? Come with me. I have your payment and a new offer. I stood next to Castor as the wooden elevator ascended slowly. Are you ready for this? asked Castor. Is anyone ever ready to marry a man they've never met? I wouldn't think whether or not I was ready was of anyone's concern, certainly not yours, I said to him. We have a deal. I just want to be sure you remember that. I remember everything. Are you still under the delusion that you are married to your bodyguard? Let's not talk about delusions. And as for whether or not we're still married, we're both still alive, and as far as I know, there's only one way to truly break marriage. I just want to be sure you keep up your end of the bargain. To marry the Baron? I'm fully prepared to marry the Baron. And what of your wife, then? <laughs> a wife and a husband. Won't they be a pair? I think everyone should have one of each. Then you can accessorize properly depending upon the occasion. This isn't a game. Oh, Castor, I thought I told you everything is a game. What is your plan? Well, on one side, I have a former boxing champion and a gunslinger. On the other side, I have an old army general who likes to play with trains. My plan is to see which one of them comes out on top when they realize they're married to the same woman. That is not what we talked about in New York. The key to any game is to be able to improvise with what pieces are available, I told him. I promise you, Castor, you'll get what you're looking for. I just need you to follow my lead and pay attention. All right. But you know what happens if you don't hold up your side of the bargain. I die. That's always the consequence of losing the game. That's why I'm always surprised people don't play it with a little more respect. I smiled at him. We're here. He said as we reached the top of the tower. The rest is up to you. I stepped off the wooden elevator 
and waited before the door to Agamemnon's office. Castor opened it and stepped through. Agamemnon stood behind his desk and gave a slight bow as I entered his office. Castor entered after me. Standing next to me, he said, Sir, may I introduce you to Helen Taggett? Thank you. You are dismissed, Agamemnon said. I'm sorry, sir. I am the lady's butler and chaperone. It would be inappropriate for me to leave her alone in your company until after the wedding. Fine, but stay quiet. I need to speak with my betrothed. He insisted. I stood waiting, saying nothing. It wasn't my place to speak until spoken to, and then I could only answer direct questions. How was your journey? Exhilarating. I'm sad to see it end. You're not happy to finally be here? You should always enjoy the journey. If you only enjoy the destination, then you'll spend most of your life in melancholy anticipation of what's to come. They tell me you're insane, he said, and waited for me to reply, but I said nothing. He waited a moment and then demanded, Answer me. You haven't asked me a question. You made a statement, and then you gave me an order, neither of which have answers because they're not questions. Why should I agree to marry a crazy woman? Because you love her. And what if I don't love her? Then you shouldn't marry her. You'd be a fool to do so. Are you saying I shouldn't marry you? Are you saying you don't love me? I don't love you. I don't know you. But that's not what I'm asking or saying. What I want to know is, should I marry a woman I don't love and whom I know to be crazy? You shouldn't marry a woman you don't love. The rest of the question becomes moot after that. Do you love me? No. Then are you a fool for agreeing to this marriage? Maybe. Explain. I was given a choice. Act or don't act. It was the first and only choice I was ever given. Yes or no. Marry or don't. I flipped a coin. <laughs> did you really? No, not really. How did you come by your decision? I asked the gods for advice. And did they answer you? She did. She? She. Are you crazy? No. Then why do I keep getting reports that you are? I could only speculate, because I have not read the reports, nor do I know where they come from. Will you speculate for me, then? I'll try. The nature of insanity is to not understand the difference between reality and fantasy. But the truth is, there isn't a person alive who has complete and total understanding of reality. You only understand it in pieces, and those pieces mostly through the metaphor of your own experiences. In the 16th century, there was a man named Copernicus. He saw the world through the metaphor of science. He believed the earth revolved around the sun, and for this belief, he was considered to be insane. But what he did was he saw the world differently than others, and those others believed he was wrong and therefore crazy. I see the world differently than others. I see it through the metaphor of the Greek myth. And because I do, others often believe I'm crazy. They have decided that one myth is right and the other is wrong. Would I be considered crazy if I saw the world through the metaphor of Adam and Eve? You see the world differently than others. You believe that with the right strategy and patience, it can be united. You see it through the metaphor of war. You think that it would only take one man controlling one government to control the entire world. Most people would consider you crazy, but I don't. I believe you see the world differently, 
And maybe, just maybe, one day you'll achieve your goal. Is that what you want? Do you want to be queen of the world? Is that why you have agreed to this marriage? No. I have no delusions of who I am and what will happen to me. I will not be the queen of the world, nor do I care to be. I'll be locked away in your estate in New York. I'll be expected to have a child for you. If it's a girl, I will most likely be allowed to raise it until it's time for it to go to finishing school. If it's a boy, it will most likely be shipped off to military school as soon as possible. I don't believe, and I don't expect, in either instance, that I'll be allowed to be a mother in any way. I will be kept by servants. I expect I will not even have control over them. I will be queen of nothing. What do you want, then? I want access to a library and the companionship of my bodyguard. Is that all? If that's all I have, then I could be content. You won't find a life like that lonely. You're a busy man. I do not expect romance from you, nor do I expect you to take time out of your schedule to see to my emotional needs. I will not demand of you, nor tax your time. All I ask is for a good book and the bodyguard you hired to keep me company. I know I will be safe with her, and she can play chess with me when I'm tired of reading. Do you like playing chess? It's one of my favorite games. Would you like to play with me sometime? I will be your wife. I will play any game you wish. To be honest with you, I was expecting a little more defiance out of Lucy's little girl. He waited again for an answer, but again I said nothing. Well? He asked. I'm sorry, what was your question? You're Lucy's little girl. Why don't you have half her fire or spirit? Lucy is not my mother. No, but you are her student, are you not? Yes, I was. And what did she teach you? She taught me many things. Mostly she taught me how to be a wife. And that is what I'm prepared to be. Honestly, you're a little disappointing. But you've come all this way and it hardly seems worth the expense of sending you back. Very well. We'll hold the ceremony tomorrow evening. You may retire to your room. It's been prepared for you. Mr. Rightway is speaking to your bodyguard now. I'm sure he will have a bargain shortly, and she will join you. He looked at me for a moment. He didn't move. Just let his eyes pass over my dress, my shoes, my gloves. Then he spoke. Are you really Helen of Troy? I am. Would you like to play chess with me? I have a board here. I would enjoy that. I know it's not my place, but would you like to make the game a little more interesting? You want to put a wager on it? No. What I'm suggesting is a variation. A new way of playing the game that you may not be used to. Therefore, it'll make the game more challenging. All right. What's your variation? For you, the game is the same. But for me, I begin the game with two queens and no king. That would put you at an unfair advantage, and give me no way of winning. Not necessarily. I have two queens, but if you take either of them, you win. <laughs> now you're starting to sound more like Lucy. I accept your terms. Let's play. Odysseus sat at his desk, inside the security office, and pointed to the chair across from it. Paris sat down. It was the same chair she sat in when she originally took the job. She looked over the wooden cage that acted as the drunk tank. Achilles came in and stood behind her. 
First, let's get the matter of your payment out of the way. Odysseus took from the desk a locked box. He set it on the desk and opened it with the key from his pocket. He pulled out and counted a stack of bills. He slid them over across the table for Paris to take. This is $450. It's what remains of the $700 that was agreed upon, plus another $100 to cover your expenses and appreciation for the job you've done. It was more of an adventure than we had anticipated. Although, some of that is your fault. My fault? How could I have anticipated that you would be kidnapped? <laughs> well, you know, my friends always think they're helping. Both Helen and the Baron are impressed with how you have handled things. Helen now considers you her best friend, a title she has never given anyone else. But you need to understand before you agree to anything, who she is and what happened to her. I have to tell you her story, and when I'm done, if you want to walk away, I will understand. First off, she is not Helen of Troy. I am not Odysseus, Lucy is not Penelope, there is no Persephone's, Hades, Ares, or any other gods following her around. None of these things are real. It was just the only way she could cope with reality. She's also not the most beautiful woman in the world. Odysseus took a large breath and then let it out slowly. He leaned forward on the desk as he spoke again. I know she has made some sort of deal with you. Paris stiffened, worried that Odysseus was maybe more perceptive than she had thought. Did he know about them? I know this because she has made a deal with everyone. It's how she protects herself. She has made a bargain with me, with my wife, with her butler, and I'm sure right now she's up there talking to the Baron and making a bargain with him. She makes these deals, and then she plays people against each other. It's part of the reason why we always keep her doors locked and control who she can and cannot see and spend time with. That's why you keep her a prisoner? She's not a prisoner. She's being protected. For her, there are true dangers in the world. Misguided pirates, overzealous cavalry captains, Amazons. Robber barons, Paris added. Indeed. Odysseus continued. She was not trained as a gunfighter or a boxing champion. What she was trained to do was charm. And if there were a contest for such a skill, I have no doubt she would win it. Her smile is her weapon. We try to keep her away from the type of people she would use it on. Then why do you keep her locked up? Because the greatest danger to Helen at this point in her life is Helen. Do you care for her? I do. Do you want to keep her safe? I have sworn to her I will always keep her safe. Then you must understand what she's looking for. Given the opportunity, she will put herself, she will put you, she will put everyone she knows in danger. She is trying to start a war because she believes by starting it, she will fulfill her destiny and find her true love. We lock her in to keep her from running away to find this love. It's just a story. None of it is real, but she doesn't believe that. She would run away with a fisherman if she believed him to be this love. Maybe she would be happier with the person she loves, no matter who they are. She won't be. Everyone she meets, she judges. She finds a character in the story she believes them to be. She assigns them a new name, like Odysseus. From then on, that's who they are to her. 
and she will treat them like their mythical counterpart. If she were to find a man she believes to be her love, she will assign that man this position, until one night, when he fails to fulfill her expectations, she will realize she was wrong, and then she will kill him in his sleep. Wait, what? It won't be her fault. You have to understand what happened to her. Then you will understand why we are so protective. Then you will understand why we have been so careful. Marrying the Baron is the best thing for her. She doesn't believe him to be this lover. She believes him to be Agamemnon, which means she will marry him and wait for him to invite this man to come to their estate and stay for a visit. That's how the story goes. It will be your job to be sure this never happens. Sadly, it will be your job to be sure she never receives a male visitor for the rest of her life. Then she will be happy, waiting for a man who will never show up because he never existed. It was never real. It's just a story. But as long as she believes it, she will try to make it come true. It's your job to see that it doesn't. That seems so cruel. How could I do that to her? How could you do that to her? Because the alternative is far worse. When I first moved to New York, I had just married. My wife Lucy had been a detective, a Pinkerton as well. But she anticipated we would have a child, and she worked hard finding a place for us to live and decorating it, preparing for this child. I tried to find a job as a reporter, but despite the popularity of the articles I wrote about your father, none of the papers in New York seemed interested in me. You wrote about my father? Yes. I followed him around the West, reporting on his fights. That's how I met him. What was he like then? He was young. He looked like the kid he claimed to be. He fought like you do. He even once almost fought Mr. Miller here. Odysseus nodded to Achilles. Paris turned to look at him. He grumbled and shrugged. He's Aaron the Killer Miller. A long time ago he was. The fight with your father was his last. All the reports say your father died. What really happened? Asked Odysseus. Dad's always been a little vague about that. All I know is everybody believed he was dead, and he couldn't pay back the bets on the fight that never really happened, so he pretended to be dead, said Paris. In New York, it wasn't long before Alan Pinkerton himself came to call on Lucy. He had a case he wanted her to work on. She refused. She said she had retired. He offered her double her normal fee. She made a compromise. If he hired me as a detective, she would support me. Alan agreed, and I became a Pinkerton. I was good at it. I understood people instinctually. I could deduce their motivations. All my time as a reporter questioning people, getting down to the truth, were exactly the skills I needed to be a detective. I rarely needed Lucy's help, and Lucy seemed content preparing for the child. But as the years passed, it became obvious it wasn't going to happen. Then, twelve years later, I met Helen. This has been Helen of the Iron Horse, written by Paris Lee, artwork by Helen Lee, performed by Helen and Paris. All characters within are fictional and bear no intentional resemblance to anyone living or dead, except, I guess, for Helen and Paris. See more of our work at 
edgeoftheworldart.com. If you would like to comment on the show or ask any question, please email us at helenoftheironhorse at gmail.com. The proceeding was made with the love and encouragement of all of our friends at the LA LGBT Center's Trans Lounge. Thank you. Thank you.